Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History. Now, yesterday, uh, if you were listening, you will know that um, we did a walk around Rome and London and we thought it would be fun to have a, a London-themed week. So we'll be doing another walk uh, later in the week, or rather Tom Holland will be dragging me on another <laughs> In another your bleeding walk. shoes. In, in, yeah, in a pair of new You're shoes. Inappropriate footwear, like the Kaiser. It, I was like the Kaiser at yeah. Cowes wearing inappropriate footwear. But we'll come to that in due course. So yesterday we were in Rome and London. And what we're going to do in the build-up to the next walk is each day we're going to release a podcast, uh, of which this is one, um, concentrating on a different aspect of London life. So uh, people, places, and moments. And so what we're doing um, today is we've each chosen a place, haven't we, Tom? We have. Yeah. Um, that's redolent of a particular era in London's history. Yeah. But you want to talk about a walk, don't you? So, so the place I have chosen... It's the only place in London to which I have gone on pilgrimage. Um, and I can tell you the exact date on which I did it. It was the 20th of March last year. This isn't a, this isn't a sentence you often hear. And I remember it because 20th of March, of course, as, as you will remember, Dominic, is St. Cuthbert's Day, a day that I would normally celebrate by meeting up with Jonathan Wilson and other such people from the Northeast and toasting the great saint. I couldn't do that. We were under lockdown. So I thought, well, I should, I should do something Anglo-Saxon. Um, and so I went for a very, very long walk. So I went all across South London. So out into uh, Brixton, where I live, uh, or Beortetsiga's Stone, as it was known back in the Anglo-Saxon times, through Peckham, the homestead by the River Peck. Right. I got to, to Greenwich and then to Woolwich. And the Witch is in a, a wick. It's a kind of great trading emporium. So the, the Green Trading Emporium and a trading emporium that deals in wool. And at Woolwich, I got the ferry and I went up north uh, and I arrived at Barking, which okay. I suppose isn't, I mean, it's not kind of famous today as a place of pilgrimage, but this was the place that I'd come to. Yeah, it's not a place you often walk to. It's a very ancient place. So it's named in a charter of 735 as um, Berikingham, which uh, apparently means either settlement of the descendants of Berica or people who live among birch trees. I think I, I, think I prefer the second. So, Tom, just for people who don't know, tell us where Barking, because, I mean, you're doing that London thing, yeah, very, 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 I'm assuming that, I mean, most people don't care about London at all, Tom. So explain to us. So I've gone, so I've gone along, I've gone along South London. I've, I've followed the line of the Thames. Woolwich, there's a ferry. I've got the ferry over to North London. Across the Thames. Uh, yeah, across north. the Thames. Yeah. Uh, and I'm now in East London. So quite a long way. I should think about uh, seven or eight miles east of the city of London. Okay. So... So back in um, back in the sixth, back in the seventh century, this was uh, a, you know a, a fair way out from London, Rome, the, the ruins of Roman London. Mm -hmm. Roman London has been abandoned, um, but 
London is a place of interest to the Christian missionaries who have arrived in Kent, sent by Pope Gregory the Great, so Augustine, uh, leading this um, this missionary uh, campaign to convert the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity. And Gregory's plan is that there will be archbishops in London and in York, because in Roman times, these were the centres of, of colonial administration. Yeah. Um, but they've come to Kent. Kent has offered a kind of, you know, a welcome. Uh, London is a much more menacing place. It's a kind of, it's, it's, it's the badlands. So that's why Augustine ends up becoming the Archbishop of Canterbury rather than of London, because London is, is too dangerous for him to settle. Too dangerous, why? Inhabited by stray dogs, bandits, ne'er-do-wells, rather like today. Um, yes, um, uh, but also under the thumb of um, kings who are, uh, have not yet embraced Christianity. So right. it's, it's, it's dangerous on the kind of the personal level. Uh, London is, is a place you don't really want to visit. Because it's um, ruined, isn't it? Yeah, and ruins are provide hideouts for, for kind of bandits and mm-hmm. all kinds of people you wouldn't want to, to mix with. So yeah. it's, it's a dangerous place. But yeah. there's still the ambition to get a bishop into London because it's a Roman city and there's a feeling that a Roman city should have a bishop. So you get this guy called Melitus, who is the first bishop of London. He goes in there. He tries to set up shop. He gets chased out and he flees not only London, uh, but England itself. He basically scarpers back to Gaul. So again, London is left without a bishop. But meanwhile, in Kent, more and more people are becoming Christian. The the ruling family in particular are becoming Christian. And you get this guy called Erkenwald, who's probably of Kentish royal descent, who gets appointed Bishop of London, have another crack at it. And he goes back and he is able to establish the church in London sufficiently that Erkenwald is the first in the continuous line of bishops that runs right the way up to the present day. So there's still a Bishop of London now. Yeah. Bishop of London stands in a line of descent from Erkenwald. Now, Erkenwald, before he becomes Bishop of London, has set up two um, abbeys on the outskirts of London, one at Chertsey, which is at southwest of London, mm-hmm. and one at Barking. And this abbey he establishes at Barking will become one of the great, great centres of scholarship and specifically of female scholarship, because the person who is put in charge of the Abbey is um, Erkenwald's sister, Athelberg. Athelberg? Athelberg. Okay. Or Ethelberger, if you Okay. If you Ethelberger. Fancy Let's go with Ethelberger. That's slightly easier to say. And she is a, a saintly figure, a, a virgin, a nun, um, but also a great scholar. And she establishes this idea that Barking should be a place not just for prayer, but of, of scholarship and specifically of female scholarship. So I never had Barking down as a sort of blue stocking stronghold. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but this is what it was. And, and so when she, she's a figure of transcendent holiness, um, when she dies, a nun in Barking sees her drawn up to heaven carried on, on golden chains. So she's oh, been taken up nice. um, and she becomes a saint. And from that point on, basically, the the abbess of Barking is the kind of the top abbess in the whole of England. And that's that's a status that she she has right the way through the Middle Ages. 
Um, there's, there's a wonderful, the, the, there's a wonderful scholar of this period, uh, called Eleanor Parker, who's at Oxford, uh, and she has a, a blog under the name of Clark of Oxford, uh, and she's on Twitter as well. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's absolutely one of my favorite Twitter accounts, one of my favorite blogs. And she kind of goes through the Anglo-Saxon liturgical year, which I know, Dominic, you may sound a bit boring, but it really isn't because it's full of kind of all the fantastic stories of what the saints get up to, the miracles, <laughs> mad Vikings, all this kind of thing. Um, Eleanor described Barking Abbey in, in a post she did on it as perhaps the longest lived institutional centre of literary culture for women in British history, which mm. is a kind of, you know, an amazing thing. Why don't people all, make but, more of it, Tom? They should make more of it. Well, but because the Reformation intervenes. But before the Reformation, you know, there, there's incredible um, tradition that, that, that Eleanor describes and a, a whole su- kind of succession of, of remarkable women. So in the reign of Edgar the Peaceable, um, yeah. Anglo-Saxon king of the 10th century, called peaceable not because he was a hippie, but because uh, he maintained the peace by hanging anyone who gave him any problems. Yeah, so, strong leadership for a strong stable leadership. Britain. Yeah, 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 law and order. Um, so uh, Edgar the Peaceable fancied this um, uh, Anglo-Saxon lady called Wolfhilda, who had grown up in Wilton, which is just outside Salisbury, so very local to me. Um and Edgar the Peaceable really, really fancied her. But Wolfhilda was obviously um, uh, very holy, wanted to go off and um, devote herself to God. Yeah. Uh, so had no time for the advances of Edgar the Peaceable. And Edgar, was he was so bad um, that he sent a message to uh, Wolfhilda saying that her aunt was ill. So <laughs> Wolfhilda, obviously, you know, very, very anxious about this, comes rushing to her aunt goes into her aunt's bedroom but is edgar the peaceable's there wow it's not Wolf, it's not it's not the aunt at all that's not very um, peaceable at all is it and and so uh wolf hilda is um gives him a slap yeah. runs off and escapes by going down the drains apparently that's very carry on isn't it yeah it's very it's it is it's, yeah it's carry on anglo-saxon nunnery um anyway so wolf hilda protects her, her chastity and virtue um and um ends up as a, a very a particularly saintly um abbess of barking well, that's good. Um, so that's good. Um, other famous people who uh, became who who were uh, barking. So um, Thomas Beckett's sister, Mary Mary Beckett. Okay, she's not technically famous, but I mean he's famous. Yeah, she's got famous relative. She's a top sister. She's a top sister. She gets so she gets it after her brother's been killed. It's a kind of mark of of penance. Oh, so basically Henry the Second, yeah, groveling gives her says, "Be abbess, forgive me." And another uh, another relative of, of, of uh, a famous medieval figure, um, Elizabeth Chaucer, who is the daughter of Geoffrey Chaucer. She's, okay. she's a nun there. Yeah. Again, not technically famous, but you, you're, you're getting a sense that um, this is this is the go to place. This yeah. is this is the place for kind of top nuns. Um, <laughs> yes. Which is which is why it's such a sh- you know there are times where I really hate the Reformation. And the thought of what happens to Barking Abbey is oh, one of Tom. them. Um, Tom. So this great ancient historic centre of learning gets closed down. It all gets flogged off. Um, and all that basically, you know, it all gets demolished. And basically all that remains is um, one of the three gateways. It's it's called the Curfew Tower. So you can still see it there in the middle of Barking. But, I, but nothing know, I, nothing else remains. I had you down. This is We've done 200 odd podcasts and you've never really come out, but I've always suspected that you were unsound about the Reformation. No, well, I, I'd read so much about Barking Abbey. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what, what, what an amazing centre. And to go there and to see, you know, 
There's absolutely nothing there. It was very, very sad. However, um, I, I then continued my pilgrimage, Dominic. Because when you say pilgrimage, I mean, were you carrying a cross? Were you? No, I, but I was. You know, I wanted to see it. I, it. It was a place I wanted to see. I walked there, but then I wanted to continue the pilgrimage because the story is not completely over. Not every trace of barking has gone. Ooh, this is exciting. Yeah. So I then walked um, westwards, so through the East End. Yeah. Uh, and I got to the Tower of London. God, this is quite a walk, Tom. Yeah, it was a massive walk. It was absolutely massive walk. It was quite hot. Uh, and I, uh, you know, and it was the lockdown, so it was shut. So, and I'd run out of water. So I was getting quite dehydrated. Anyway, I arrived by, at, um, by the Tower of London. There is a church called All Hallows by the Tower. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it's a very ancient church, um, it, but it looks quite modern. And that's not because it got burnt down in the Fire of London, but because it got blown up by gunpowder in, in, um, uh, in 1650. So, oh, right, um, okay. So sixteen by accident years. or delivery? Years. Yeah. So it was a, it was a kind of storehouse during the Civil War. Yeah. Um, and then it got very very badly bombed in the Blitz, and this bombing revealed something really really startling, which is an Anglo-Saxon doorway made out of Roman tiles, That's and this cool. is basically the only fragment of Anglo-Saxon architecture that you'll find anywhere in London, and it dates right the way back to the time of the founding of Barking Abbey. And the reason, the link with Barking Abbey is that in the Middle Ages, it was this, this church, or Hallis by the Tower, was known as Birkingchurcher. And so the presumption is that, that it was founded by Erkenwald and given to Barking Abbey. And as such, it's a kind of, you know, it's a precious living link to the, the traditions of Barking Abbey. Um, and in fact, so, so it's, it, you know, it joins the Anglo-Saxon traditions of Christianity to the Roman history yeah. of London because the, the the brickwork is there so very 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 moving there are um there's a stained glass window that um name checks Barking Abbey there's an icon of Saint Ethelberger um in in All Hallows and also you you may remember there's a there's a very small church also in the city dedicated to Saint Ethelberger which survived both the Great Fire and the Blitz but then got blown up by the IRA oh yeah do you remember that I it do in, remember I think 1993 yeah, part of yes. that kind of massive bombing campaign in the city. I mean, they, obviously yeah. they weren't targeting Saint in the nineties, yeah, but it was collateral damage. Um, uh, and I, re- I got, I got welcomed to All Hallows by the vicar, who gave me wonderful welcome. And um, did he know you were coming? She gave me, she, yeah. So she's in the tradition of uh, of of Saint Athelberger, right? Um, uh, she did. I phoned ahead, uh, and she gave me a cup of tea. Uh, which was one of the best cups of tea I've had. Were well, you not breaking lockdown regulations there, Tom? No, I think it was okay. I think it was okay. That's, that's what he's saying for the benefit of the podcast. Dominic Cummings of history, they call him. Yeah, maybe I've given it all away there. So so two questions that I think the listeners will want to know. One, how did the walk conclude? Oh, so um, I carried on uh, through the city. Uh, I went to see um, the docks that uh, King Alfred built, uh, only surviving portion of Anglo-Saxon architecture on the, the banks of the Thames. Uh, I went to Westminster Abbey, of course, you know, built by Edward the Confessor. Yeah. Uh, and then I walked back to Brixton. Crikey, that is a walk, Tom. Yeah, it was a long walk. It was a very it's long very walk. very impressive. Yeah. The other question, though, is, um, so if listeners are inspired by your talk of top nuns to go and visit Barking Abbey for themselves, what will they see? They will see this single tower, the curfew tower, uh, one of the three gateways that led into the Abbey, and that's yeah. all that remains. And is it sort of surrounded by, I don't know, I can't imagine what the, what is there embarking? Is it surrounded by sandwich shops? And... There's, no, there's, it, there's a, a very nice green open space. Um, there's a church next to it. Um, and then you've got uh, Barking High Street. 
lots of street markets, all that kind of thing. Well, I mean, it's 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 uh, it's a good place. It's not. It doesn't have the aura of a great centre of female scholarship. Let's put it like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, what the Barking Tourist Board will make of your description? Who knows? Because you kind of you, you gave with one hand and took away with the other. I felt there. But um, everybody should go and check the tower out for themselves. I think. Should well, I think it's I think it's one of those places that you need to know what stood there, or else right. it, it won't particularly hit you as anything worth visiting. Like ninety nine percent of archaeological sites, in other words. Well, definitely like Anglo-Saxon London, uh, of of which, you know, as I say, there's basically only this doorway. I mean, that's all that's physically preserved of it. Yeah. So if you if you want to go in search of Anglo-Saxon London, um, you know, there's there's very little to see. You really need to take your imagination with you. Yeah. OK. It's like that thing that um, members of my household have been known to say when I've suggested visits to historic sites where they've said, is it just a heap of stones? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you're barking it's not even a heap of stones. There's literally nothing. So it's even more exciting. But that's but Dominic, that's why I went on my own. Yeah. I mean, I knew better than to drag Sadie along to that. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Look, darling, we've walked 20 miles. And here it is. The single best image of you, Tom, is that image of you having dragged your family. It's on the internet somewhere, isn't it? Because you, you tweeted it. Of you having dragged your family to Hadrian's Wall, yes. and it's pouring with rain. They're clearly yeah. years ago on a summer holiday. Two yeah. small girls standing there in their anoraks, yeah, and they looking so Newcastle. miserable in a garage forecourt. Or <laughs> Happy days, brilliant. So we should take a break, I think. And when we return, let us we'll be catapulted forward into the 1950s. Um, there will be drinks, and the mood will be very different from the female scholarship of Barking Abbey. So we'll see you after the break. Brilliant. Bye-bye. Hello, welcome back to uh, The Rest is History uh, and welcome back to our London Week. Um, all this week we're looking at the history of the British capital um, and today we are looking at places and in the first half we looked at Barking Abbey, which was my nomination. Um, and Dominic, now time for your nomination which i think is is much more recent isn't it it is indeed so we're in the years after the second world war in the 1950s now tom you said in the first half that the vicar of the church the all hallows church or whatever it is um, not that i've forgotten but all hallows by the tower i kind of have forgotten so she gave you a cup of tea yeah not a cup of coffee no not a cup of coffee cup of tea so um had you been strolling around london in the years after the second world war you would have found a lot of places to give you a cup of tea but coffee might have been more of an issue because, of course, um, England, London had had a, a history of coffee houses, but was very much a kind of tea place, I would say, kind of uh, first half of the 20th century. Kind of George Orwell writing essays about the, how to make the perfect cup of tea and so on. But the 1950s are boom years for coffee, Tom. And why is so, that? So lots of Italian immigrants moved to um, Britain in the years after the Second World War. Uh, there's a big demand for labour. Um, Italy is a great exporter, net sort of net exporter of people. And so they're bringing their kind of shiny coffee machines? Is they right? are bringing shiny coffee machines. So the place that a lot of Italians, I mean, Italians go all over the country, they go to places like Bedford, um, working brickmaking and so on. But they, in London, lots move to Soho. Because Soho has always been, oh, it's a terrible cliche, but this kind of cosmopolitan melting pot and yeah. stuff. So Huguenots um, go there, don't they? Huguenots, exactly. Yeah. Um, so if you go to, I mean, Soho for overseas listeners, it's right in the heart of London. Um, it used to have a kind of seedy reputation, but not really anymore. Um, sort of very trendy media kind of people. And but in the fifties, it was kind of notorious as the red light district, wasn't it? Yes. Kind of although, 
I think the 50s, it wasn't quite as seedy as it would become in the sort of 60s, 70s. So in the 50s, I think, it, above all, it's cosmopolitan. I mean, it does have that kind of artist, exactly. I mean, of course, there are, there are you know, um, prostitutes, there are sort of dodgy bars, there are all those kinds of things. Um, but I think when people think of Soho, they think it's going to be full of delicatessens, coffee shops, all these things. So you have lots of coffee bars. Um, around Old Compton Street in particular in Soho. So there are lots of Italian restaurants, so they're called things like Amalfi and and Presto and so on. There's a place in Frith Street called Mocha, which is supposedly the first place in Britain to have an espresso machine. So a Gaggia machine. So Dominic, Um, this this is the 50s. So the 50s. London is still very dingy, very kind of smoky, austere, um, so not a place full of light and colour and vibrant street life. No. Um, so Soho is a kind of a blaze of colour in an otherwise dingy urban landscape, or is that that? I think that's a tiny bit harsh, but I think there's a bit of truth in that. So Soho is a blaze of, um, I mean, I suppose you would say now, people would say now a blaze of diversity to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It's less monochrome than much of London. Uh, you can buy foods that you can't get elsewhere you can buy foreign newspapers those kinds of things you might go there for an italian meal that you might not find you know a few streets away so it's busy and it's exciting um and if you go down to old compton street um in let's say 19 uh, beginning of 1956 and you go to number 59 you can find among the coffee bars there is a coffee bar there called the two eyes so it's called the Two Eyes. Um, it starts as a kind of sandwich bar stroke coffee bar, and it's opened by um, some brothers called Irani, um, who I, I, I'm assuming are of Iranian descent. Or uh, and they, there are three of them. They're originally going to call it the Three Eyes. They're one of them, but one of them falls out with the others, so he's booted out, and it's the Two Eyes. Uh, and it's not very successful, actually. There are lots of better, better coffee bars around and sort of milk bars. Yes, yeah, so uh, what's a milk bar? You just go and drink milk. Yeah, so a milk bar, basically, um, it's, I think it's kind of like a coffee bar, but it has it serves milk. Um, there's very trendy <laughs> kind of late 50s but thing. But literally just milk. No, I think they have other stuff in milk bars. I've always been slightly puzzled by milk bars. <laughs> I just You kind of read it. but I think they sort sure of started in Australia, actually, and then came... Um, to to britain and they're very sort of redolent of the late 50s and early 60s um when i used to go to holiday to wales as a child in the early 80s i remember there was a milk bar in mahanthleth um which i think must have been one of the last remaining milk bars in britain anyway so um the two eyes is there and it's this sort of slightly failed um sandwich bar stroke coffee bar so if you went into one of these 50s coffee bars there's a sort of espresso machine clanking behind the um the counter, there are sort of pot plants, there are sort of trendy plastic chairs, and there's sort of youngsters sitting around with their copies of kind of French existentialist books and so on. So, Tom, have you ever seen, there's a film called The Rebel with Tony Hancock, where no, which I is a sort of, that. it's a sort of, um, it's a film mocking that sort of trend, the late 50s trend for kind of existentialism and all this kind of so thing. So people wearing duffel coats. Exactly, exactly people wearing duffel coats, sort of beatniks, British yep. beatniks. And um, in this film, I think Tony Hancock drops out and he wants to become a an artist or something. And he goes into this coffee bar and he says he wants a cup of coffee. And uh, he says, I want a cup of coffee with no froth on it. 
And the woman behind the, the uh, counter is like, no froth? What's he wanting no froth for? And there's a man with a massive moustache, who's an Italian, who says kind of, what did I invest in an expensive machine for when he was no froth and all this kind of thing? Anyway, so the Two Eyes is a failed version of this. The Iranians eventually sell it. They sell it to two Australian wrestlers. Wow. Uh, one of whom, the, the, the one of whom I think is the, the only one whose name is remains, is well known, is um, a guy called Paul Lincoln, who traded in the wrestling arena under the name Dr. Death. Good name. So Dr. Death, so they've got a coffee bar now, the Two Eyes. It's equally useless. It sort of hemorrhages money. And you may is that because they're too busy wrestling? Probably, probably. You know, yes, exactly. <laughs> Could I have a coffee? No, I've got to go and... Yeah, you've got to go and work on my cape or whatever. But they, what sort of rescues the, the fortunes of the bar is they have a tiny um, basement. So basically, the coffee shop itself, there's a room for about 20 people. And then in the basement, they can fit in, I don't know, 100 people or so in this sort of sweaty cellar. Um. And at the end of the cellar, they have a stage made of milk crates, kind of milk bottle crates. And there's a microphone, which, according to the thing I read online, it says the microphone is left over from the Boer War. I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not convinced that could be true. I can't believe they had microphones in cellars <laughs> in the Boer War. Seems improbable. But it does seem improbable. You know, if there are maybe... any historians of microphones exactly. in the Boer War, let us know. If only there were some historians involved with this podcast, you could tell yeah, us. Yes. <laughs> but, um, anyway, so they start having um, people to play music in the basement, and they get a band called Wally White and the Vipers. Are you familiar with their work, Tom? I love them. Um, so you may mock Wally White and the Vipers, but they were produced by a man who you'll definitely heard of called George Martin. Oh, um, right. So they actually have a few hits. They have sort of top 10 hits. Now, what the music that the Wally White and the Vipers are playing is skiffle. So most uh, British listeners will probably have heard the word skiffle. Most of our overseas listeners probably won't and won't know what it is. So skiffle is really, really hard to define. But it's, I suppose, purists will probably complain about my definition. But I would say skiffle is the kind of music that you find in mid to late 50s Britain. And it's basically like a very diluted version of blues, of folk, kind of proto rock and roll and very diy isn't it very diy and the diy the sort of the, the amateur spirit is the point so it's people are basically bought cheap guitars washboards and things like that and they're playing in their bedrooms as teenagers and so they're Beatles playing sort beginners of, skiffle group yeah so almost a lot of these bands a lot of the iconic bands um of the 60s began or or as skiffle bands or started out playing skiffle when they were 14 or 15 um just sort of playing almost kind of folk blues kind of music, um, but in a very sort of jaunty, jolly way um, in their bedrooms on those sort of terrible guitars. So this is what Wally White and the Vipers are doing. And they're very successful. And you start getting cues outside the two eyes by the, I think by sort of 1957 or so. And then um, people start to notice skiffle. So 56, 57 in Britain is a sort of really interesting kind of cultural moment when a few years before, nobody was really talking about teenagers and youth culture. And then by 1957 or so, it's in the air. Everybody's talking about mm. it. Bill Haley and his comets have come at the end of 1956. Sort of people have heard of rock and roll. They've heard of Elvis. And there's clearly, there's more money around. And people are talking about coffee bars and they're talking about... And so about... Soho is a kind of absolute centre for this. And Soho, exactly. And the two eyes is picked up by uh, a BBC programme called 6-5 Special. So it's a TV That's program. Groovy. 
it's very groovy and it's a it's a it's a sort of pioneering um program about youth culture and and pop music and the bbc actually take over the two eyes and do a live six five special from the two eyes which i think is must now be lost and that sort of enshrines it suddenly is the place so this is good news for the wrestlers brilliant news for the wrestlers absolutely it's splendid news so dr death who pre- who had thought he was taking over a failing sandwich shop yeah. suddenly finds he's taken over a place which it start it has this neon sign that says the world famous two eyes coffee bar the home of the stars wow so it's one of the first examples of those places that you get later on with say the cavern club of a a sort of probably quite down at heel night spot that basically becomes this sort of emblematic yeah the symbol of a wider kind of yeah. Um, cultural, indeed, economic kind of movement. So you start getting these singers and people will say, well, they were discovered at the Two Eyes. They played at the Two Eyes and that's therefore their, that's their equivalent of sort of... So who's the most you, famous? So the first one, the, probably the most important one, is Tommy Steele. Oh, yeah. So Tommy Steele's first single was called Rock With The Caveman and his big hit was actually Singing The Blues, January 1957. He's often described as the first, and maybe Lonnie Donegan, but Tommy Steele is the first true British pop star. He's 19, his, his youth, his working classness, because he's from Bermondsey, they are, they are sort of part of the package, and he's packaged as the British Elvis. He's also the first British star, I think, who has screaming, who has girls screaming. Mm. And are they screaming um, in the basement of the Two Eyes? They were screaming. Well, the, I mean, him, him having been at the, the, at the Two Eyes, all these people who were at the Two Eyes or weren't, it's sort of shrouded in myth and controversy. Right. So his managers basically, and one of his managers was a guy called Larry Parnes, who was very famous. Yes. Developing this kind of stable in the late 50s. Larry Parnes said, oh, I discovered him singing at the Two Eyes. And that, again, this is probably the first example of that sort of theme that you get so often in the 60s, that there's a particular iconic venue and people are discovered there by managers. Yeah. You know, it's the classic Cavern Club kind of um uh, story and then and then transformed and this is what supposedly happens to Tommy Steele. So you say about the names: Marty Wilde, Vince Eager, Tommy Quickly, Duffy Power, Brilliant. Rory Storm, <laughs> Johnny Gentle, <laughs> Dickie Pride. And there's a point at which you I think mean, some of these Johnny Gentle. Well, <laughs> Dickie Pride. I mean, would you be Dickie Pride? I think I'd rather be Dickie Pride than Johnny Gentle or Duffy Power. Would you be Duffy? Yeah, Power, Duffy Power. Uh, Marty Wilde was the father of Kim Wilde, wasn't he? Yeah, I think he was. Um, and Vince Eager, I think, was quite successful. I don't know about Tommy Quickly. I haven't followed his career. <laughs> um, but um, there are two other singers who were supposedly uh, involved with the Two Eyes. And again, it's it's one of those stories that you sort of think that they sort of tell in their autobiographies, but, but the autobiographies are ghostwritten. So you don't know whether it's – it's a bit like kind of Suetonius and his lives of Roman emperors. You don't know whether it's part of the formula. Is it just part of the formula? And and especially in these cases, they themselves probably just end up believing what's written in their autobiography because they can't remember whether they were there or not. So the first example of a famous one – are you familiar with the career of Terry Nellums? No. Do you know who Terry So Terry Nellums is a messenger boy from Acton, and he plays in a teenage skiffle band. So in other words, he's heard blues music and stuff like that picks up a guitar, plays with his mates, has a little stint at the Two Eyes, and he's filmed there by 6-5 Special, by the cameras. Um, and he is seen by a TV producer called Jack Good. And 
Paul, our producer, definitely knows who Terry Lanham's is because he's put. Well, it he's in given the away comments. his real identity. He's given away he's, the, no, the real, real identity. He's given away his stage name because Jack Good says you can't be a success if you're called Terry Lanham's. You should call yourself Adam Faith. So he becomes Adam Faith, and Adam Faith is one of the. He's one of the. I guess our younger listeners probably won't even have heard of him, but he's one of the absolute sort of outstanding British rock and roll singers of the very late 50s, very early 60s. So pre the Beatles, um, selling tens of thousands of copies of their records a day, number one uh, in Christmas 1959. And his single, What Do You Want?, his most famous single hit, was produced by John Barry of the Bond film. So another kind of great 60s name. So that's Adam Faith. The sense sense that the 60s is incubating here. Exactly. That the two eyes is the place. And the other person, Tom... Um, now, have you, do you, are you familiar with the, the musical career of Harry Webb? Uh, is that Cliff Richard? It is Cliff Richard. Nah. Cause I was, he was the only one you hadn't mentioned. I mean, he's still around, isn't he? He was on the, the, the Queen's bus in the so, <laughs> Platinum Jubilee parade, I think. He was, he was, he's been uncancelled, hasn't he? He sort yes. of, he, he went through a bit of a dip a few years ago. He's been in every Jubilee it's celebration 18. and he's had, he's had a hit in every decade since the fifties. It's very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So. Peter Pan of pop. Peter Pan of Pop, yeah. So he had a booking at the Two Eyes in the summer of 1958. And again, that become, becomes part of his kind of, as it were, his legend in the late 50s. And then he gets his deal with EMI and uh, on, off he goes. Um, his band is renamed from the Drifters to the Shadows and they become The rest successful. is history. The rest is history, Tom. So the Two Eyes has this moment, really, as the sort of the basement where you go to hear Skiffle. Um, between about 1957 and probably 1959. Does the ceiling 1960. drip with sweat? I'm sure it does. I, I, mm. I'm, and it echoes to the sound, the screams of the of the teenage fans. I think it's probably also a very good example of that place that basically by the time you've heard of it, it's no it's longer over. cool. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. It's, it's moment has gone. So that like, yeah. you know, the cavern, like Carnaby Street, like all those sort yeah. of iconic places that were produced in the youth culture boom of the late 50s and 60s. So basically what happens to the two eyes, um, it's obviously uncool by the time the Beatles become well-known, 1962-63, because skiffle is no longer the thing. You know, it's become proper kind of um, rock and roll and pop music and rock music as it divides later in the 60s. Um, The two eyes closes in 1970, so that's the end of it. And if you go there now, do you know what you'll find? Um, uh, it's all Compton Street. So yes, <laughs> it's actually fish and chips. So it's a fish and chip shop. So basically, what you should do is do a walk to Barking Abbey, but see if you can take it on Compton <laughs> Street and get some. Reward yourself with some fish and chips. Well, I, as you said, I mean that's pretty much the opposite of Barking Abbey. So I yeah. think it's a great tribute to this episode that we've managed to get two such different places in Top Nuns and Cliff Top Richard. Nuns and Cliff Richard. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, well, fabulous. Um, so we will be back tomorrow with um, two top Londoners. Top Londoners. Two who, top who are we going to choose? Who are we going to choose? So Very exciting. exciting. So uh, tune in tomorrow and find out. We will see you then. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. 
Hi, Resters History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom... How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it most spoiled dog in history, maybe.